This is Good Faith Effort with Ari Lam. And here's your host, Rabbi Dr. Ari Lam. Hello, hello, and welcome to Good Faith Effort, the world's most dangerous Bible podcast, the podcast where we show you how the values and ideas of the Bible can illuminate the most important conversations in society, from politics to pop culture and beyond. And today, Good Faith fam, we have with us the first guest ever to appear on Good Faith Effort, today making his triumphant return to the pod. He's the op-ed editor of the New York Post, the author of the wonderful new bestseller, The Unbroken Thread, Discovering the Wisdom of Tradition in an Age of Chaos. He's Sorab Amari. And we're going to talk about exactly that, the importance and the beauty of tradition, especially in American society that, at least according to one very culturally influential attitude, has mostly outgrown the need for such a thing. So I want to set it up through the book of Deuteronomy. The Israelites are preparing to enter into the promised land, and they're going to build a new society to serve as a model for human flourishing and virtue. And Moses warns the people that they won't simply be working with a blank slate because the promised land was actually full of idolatry, the kind of public cult that entrenched the powerful in their positions, victimized the vulnerable, encouraged the comfortable to ignore the terrible injustices and inequities in their society. And the Israelites would need to dismantle all of this if they were going to begin anew. And that's why in Deuteronomy chapter 12, verse 2, God instructs Moses to command the people, you shall surely destroy all the places where the nations whom you shall possess serve their gods. Now, thousands of years ago, the great Jewish sages of antiquity contemplated this passage and they asked, what exactly does it mean to rid the Holy Land of idol worship? And the sages answered, you need to lisharesh achareha, which in Hebrew means you need to make sure all the root causes of idolatry are uprooted as well. It's not enough simply to get rid of all the idols or all the altars themselves. The Israelites needed to confront those forces, whether within the human soul or within society, that bring idolatry about in the first place. The fear, the self-regard, the lust for power, the blindness to any sort of truth or beauty that's not fashioned in your own image. And it's an extraordinary thought, but actually just this past weekend, I happened to be thumbing through an old book of biblical commentary, and I came across just like a stunning interpretation of this tradition by one of the great Hasidic masters of the 19th century. And he pointed out that the Hebrew phrase that means to uproot, the Sharei Shachareha, can also mean to put down new and better roots. So it's insufficient, he argued, simply to destroy the root causes of idolatry. You need to replace those roots with something else, other nobler roots. And this, I think, is the most crucial lesson for those of us who care about the success of the American experiment. Because I think there's this sense these days that the best way to create an America of which we can be proud is to learn to, you know, better respect each other's differences and pursue our individual ambitions totally unmolested. And so what we need above all, therefore, is not a set of, you know, substantive values that we can coalesce around, but a set of procedures, you know, very useful and admirable ones to be sure. But basically what we need is the machinery of, you know, of liberalism. If the Bible has anything to teach us, it's that procedures aren't enough to cure social ills. Man cannot live on procedure alone. You can't just uproot idolatry. You need to replace it with other, better, virtuous roots. So what kind of roots can Americans put down or perhaps rediscover in the coming generation? To unpack all of this, I brought on the author of a book that I think has gone farther towards helping us answer that question than any I've read in quite some time. 
He's the op-ed editor of the New York Post, author of the best-selling new book, The Unbroken Thread, Discovering the Wisdom of Tradition in an Age of Chaos, my incredible friend, Saurabh Amari. Saurabh, thanks for coming on. Thank you, Rabbi, for having me. Am I the first repeat guest? You are the first repeat guest, and uh, I'm very excited about this. Very kind of you. So before getting to your book, I actually want to start with probably my favorite piece of writing that you've ever done, which actually gets, I think, right to the heart of the question of what America needs in the coming generation to like refound itself and, you know, achieve its aspirations for human flourishing and virtue. And that is your eulogy for Rabbi Jonathan Sachs of Blessed Memory, the former chief rabbi of the United Kingdom, uh, who passed away last year. And it appeared in First Things. And... I think, you know, and I said this publicly, uh, both on on social media and in various synagogue capacities, I actually think that it was the one eulogy that I read for Rabbi Sachs that I believe he would have loved the most. Oh, thank you. Yeah. I heard from his family. They were very kind about it. They were very generous. Yeah. I'm not surprised at all. And the eulogy acknowledged the potential difference, you know, like all for the sake of heaven, of course, between the traditional Catholic account of the encounter between Greek reason and biblical faith and the Jewish account, or at least Rabbi Sachs's account. So can you unpack that difference? Because it's something that you take up, or at least one part of it you take up in your book. So can, can you unpack that difference a little bit? Sure. Beyond disagreements about revelation, there is also epistemological difference between traditional Jews and Catholics with respect to the synthesis of faith and reason. This is the Catholic account, so let me recount it that God was preparing the people of God, the Jewish people, even before the Hellenistic conquest, preparing them to articulate their faith in the one God in ever more universalistic terms, so that there's this tendency in the exilic literature that suggests a drawing toward or a preparation for then what was to come with the Hellenistic conquest when the Greeks bring the God of the philosophers into encounter with the Jewish people. And that synthesis of the two comes into even closer harmony with the advent of Christianity, where, you know, in the Gospel of St. John, God, not only that he takes flesh, but that he is reason itself, he is logos itself who takes flesh. And this is the kind of small orthodox Catholic account of that kind of late antique period and what it means for the church and what is meant for humankind. Rabbi Sachs largely rejected that telling. And in the eulogy that you're speaking about, I lay out his view. His view is that that the God of the Bible is not the God of the philosophers, that not much about him can be proved using the methods of classical and medieval metaphysics. So that he is a God of narrative, even in the difference between the languages, Hebrew, which I don't know, and Greek, which I don't know, but in the rabbi's telling, I I speak Persian. (laughs) The other great language of rabbinic and Yeah, exactly. Yes, no kidding, no kidding. <laughs> For real. <laughs> Greek tends towards abstraction and Hebrew tends towards story. And that it was really St. Paul, he wouldn't call say St. Paul, but it was the Pauline revolution to attempt to create a religion that bridged the gap between the two, bridged them through the figure of, of Jesus, Logos made flesh. So that's, in a way, as um, counter to my own views, as you can get, to be very clear. But in the eulogy, I just brought it together because... To me, Rabbi Sachs had clarified the differences, and that for me was more useful than if he had affirmed my views as a Christian, which obviously he wouldn't. So I should note, just to not leave us with the tension, that he then concludes by saying that nevertheless, the loss of that 
uh, Greco-Roman and then later medieval synthesis has been a great tragedy for humankind and has put us in the position where we are, where either we have irrational faith or, on the other hand, we have an account of rationality that's too narrow to account for things like faith and morality. We have pure scientism. And so that lament that he has for the loss of the Aquinas' authority in the West is very beautiful, especially for someone who ultimately thinks that it was a flawed synthesis. And that's exactly where I was hoping we would end up, because one of the most fascinating things about your book, The Unbroken Thread, and the larger project that I see you kind of undertaking, which is really rethinking the American project, not in order to tear it down, but in order to build it up into something that we can be proud of and that deserves pride. If you look at sort of the American past, there's sort of like this dominant Protestant stream, this like mainline Protestantism that all of the rest of American society, its civil institutions and its general kind of popular culture and kind of mooch off of for their Mm -hmm. cultural and spiritual vitality. And the collapse of mainline Protestantism has kind of left us with a void, like a spiritual, cultural, political void. And the question is what to do about that. So I think there's sort of people who either pine for the restoration of that general American Protestantism, or even if they don't realize that's what they're doing, that really is what they're doing when they say, we just got want to go back to how it was. Like, that's really what they're pining for ultimately. Then there's like this caricature of a certain stream of Catholic thought, which is like, well, the Catholics... Uh, just want to come in and and turn America into like a Catholic monarchy or what have you. Now, that may be true of some people, and and I don't want to put words in your mouth, but at least as a a reader of your book, one of the things that really struck me was the very broad palette that you're drawing from. You know, you're citing Catholic thinkers, you're citing St. Thomas Aquinas, but you're also citing just, you know, just sort of general Christian writer C.S. Lewis. You're also drawing from Rabbi Heschel. You're drawing from... Hans Jonas. Yeah, from people across a really wide spectrum. And it seems to me that this is kind of where we come back around with your eulogy for Rabbi Sachs, because one of the things that I think unites you and Rabbi Sachs is just a horror at whatever came after that traditional synthesis of faith and reason in in the West. So for the Catholics, this is the way things were supposed to be. Rabbi Sachs thinks that it left what to be desired, but sort of, as you put it, the kind of narrow scientism or the Gnostic faith or this sort of glorying in faith as totally irrational and reason have nothing to do with faith. I think Rabbi Sachs was just as horrified by those things as you were. And in fact, Rabbi Sachs talked about those things as how we got to the Holocaust, Stalinism, and some of the other terrible atrocities of the 20th century. And so what I think is remarkable about your book is that it does in a way, even though it's built, and this is your second chapter, God is a God of reason, it is built in that traditional Catholic synthesis of faith and reason. But at the same time, would it be fair to say that it is incorporating elements of the Rabbi Saxian position in just drawing from a broad variety of traditions and stories in order to create something in America that would, if it were successful, be rather unique in world history? A lot of people have commented on the ecumenism of the choice of traditions that the book draws from. We should know just briefly that it's a book posed as 12 unasked questions. We all agree something's gone wrong with the West. We all feel it in our politics. We feel it in our cultural politics, in our racial tensions, in our inability to deal with a lot of things. When a crisis hits, it creates enormous disunity instead of unity, like the pandemic or what have you. So we all feel something's gone wrong. In order to attempt to suggest that there is a better way, 
And that way is broadly encapsulated by the word tradition, uh, what's been handed down. I pose 12 unasked questions, each of which unsettles one of our kind of liberal, technocratic, secular certainties. And then I explore each of those through the life of one great thinker. And as you suggested, only about a fourth are Catholics. The rest are, there's Seneca the pagan, Hans Jonas, the agnostic Jewish philosopher, Rabbi Heschel, Confucius even. And the reason I did that, as a, as a Catholic, obviously, I have a particular account of tradition with a capital T, which is one source of authority of in the church, the church fathers, and their interpretations of essentially the Christ event and the birth of the church, and kind of the support they give to our orthodoxy. But there's also a tradition with a small t, which is how I look at other traditions. And the reason I can do that confidently as a Catholic and not, not feel threatened is that you believe in the power of, of moral reason of precisely the kind of morally charged storytelling that Rabbi Sachs discusses with respect to the Hebrew Bible and the Talmudic tradition, that there's this thread of wisdom running through the traditions of the peoples, of the gentes, that is not in tension with the Christian tradition, and in fact coheres with it. And as readers encounter the book, they'll see that although these questions are disparate and the figures through which we explore them are disparate figures, in each case, we run up against kind of the same insight just applied in different realms of life. And that insight is profoundly in tune with Psalms, by the way, and I'll get to that why, but that human beings find liberation in various kind of natural and traditional, and of course, divine limits, and that the loss of those limits sold to us in kind of liberal modernity as liberation paradoxically leaves us less free. So the emblematic case of that is my chapter on the Sabbath, right? The Sabbath restriction looks like an imposition. Hey, I want to do whatever I want every day of the week. I want to shop. I want to work. And that's how, you know, a lot of seculars got rid of the Sabbath, whatever tradition they came from. And then at the end of the process, on the other side of it, they find that they're more harried, more stressed out. This is one of those cases where like there's an empirical yeah, element to yeah. this as a Saturday Sabbath observer. I'm like a very proud religious fundamentalist fanatic. Right. But like, you know, as someone who observes the Sabbath with all of its like, you know, Jewish legal restrictions, I know this is a common experience I have with other Sabbath observers. I genuinely do not understand how people who don't have a Sabbath, yeah. it doesn't have to be my Sabbath. I do not understand how they function the rest of the week. It just is yes. incomprehensible yes. to me. Yes. So it's the easiest example I talk about most with audiences when I tell them about the book is something that looks like a restriction is paradoxically a source of freedom and its loss leaves us less free. And this is an insight that's woven through all those traditions that I've marshaled in the book. Hans Jonas, the other major Jewish thinker in the book, was a great critic of Gnosticism. And Gnosticism was ultimately, the ancient Gnostics, ultimately sought to transcend the embodied as a reality. All Gnosticism has this idea that spirit and matter are in tension with each other. Spirit is good. Matter is filthy and degraded and terrible. And the goal of life is one way or another to allow the spirit to transcend the material. Obviously, that runs so contrary to the spirit of the Hebrew Bible, right? Because everything God creates is good. And so much of Jewishness is, is rooted in materiality, in acts of feasting that are physical and have to do with the body. There's a reason why many of the Gnostics ended up deciding that the God of the Hebrew Bible is just like some crazy... Always intention, right? They are always opposed, right? They, yeah. And arguably, right. arguably, some of the earliest forms of anti-Semitism are some of the Gnostic prophets, quote unquote, right? The Marcion couldn't reconcile the Hebrew Bible with the New Testament, so he decided that the God of the Hebrew Bible is basically a demon. He couldn't be the God of the New Testament. Exactly. And, um, so there's a kind of real anti-Semitic strain to that. 
But anyway, again, we see that the body as a source of um, as a source of responsibility, as a limit to accept. And when you try to get rid of the body, you end up with things like gender ideology, which ultimately imprison because they're uh, you know demand of you to affirm things that are contrary to reality. Again, the loss of the body as a limit actually leaves us less free. So anyway, that's how I reconcile the fact that I believe in one tradition. And yet I think that traditional actors like you and me across our theological differences can work together because there is this universal wisdom of the peoples. And I actually want to pick up right there. Basically, I've been doing a lot of traveling the last couple of weeks. And right before, you know, so in-flight Wi-Fi is fine, but you can't like stream with it. Yeah. So in like the 20 minutes between when I board the plane and when I take off, I've been watching snippets one after another of the Scorsese Dylan documentary, No Direction Home Mm -hmm. uh, on Bob Dylan, which is like unbelievable. It's so good. I mean, I'm rewatching it. So I'm finally at the end of it. And one of the things that strikes me about it is here you have these 1960s bohemians on the one hand you have scottish folk singers you know in greenwich village like liam clancy saying things like oh we were just like free from tradition we had you know we were free from our families blah 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 blah. and yet you can just see how deeply enmeshed they are in tradition and not just deeply enmeshed but like consciously Mm -hmm. deeply enmeshed in tradition and blues, gospel, jazz, folk music from Ireland, from Scotland. And they realize that nothing that they do makes any sense (laughs) without tradition. They even talk about how this made a whole mess of taking credit for songwriting, because what would it mean to take credit for a song that's just so deeply drawing on the beauty of, of old and making it new? Aside from the fact that, you know, how ironic that all these bohemians in Greenwich Village are so indebted to tradition, the one point I really wanted to pick up on is that Dylan is unusual because he actually completely adopts this tradition and he's not born into it. And he says very explicitly on many occasions and in the documentary as well, that he actually had felt no connection to his actual past. You know, he's like a Jewish kid in in Duluth and he basically erases his actual past, but inserts himself into this tradition wholesale, which means that he doesn't actually reject all tradition right, which is one of the major mistakes of contemporary liberalism or kind of liberalism light. It's just that he seeks after a tradition that comports with his sense of truth, right? So it's not enough to just say, I do what my parents tell me. There has to be some marriage of of story and reason, which I guess gets us Mm -hmm. back to, you know, the Catholics and Rabbi Sachs. So what did the 60s bohemians understand about the importance of tradition and truth that moderns don't? I feel like today we have this like facile sense of, the blessings of modernity are that I can do whatever I want and not have to worry about anything that's happened in the past. And I think we kind of trace that genealogically to the sixties. And yet you kind of look around Greenwich village at this time and you don't see anything of that sort. I mean, you see like weird expressions of that, but there's a much clearer sense of tradition to my mind. Where have we gone wrong along the way? Well, I would say that, that the trends that were underway in the sixties have, uh, have accelerated so that we're on the other end of even more radical transformations. What I found interesting, again, another question that people pose with respect to the book, you said that Dylan, you know, self-consciously adopted a tradition for himself. And that's something that is not a criticism. It's an observation leveled about not just my book, but my work as a whole in the sense that as a Catholic convert. Your first book is a book about conversion, about your conversion. It's about conversion. And then with this book, There's something modern about the fact that I self-consciously set out to 
make the case for tradition. And it's true because traditions normally, much of it is taken for granted. You can reason about it. You can, you can reject it, but you, you take it for granted that this is what I'm embedded in and I do something with it. Do I pass it on? Do I modify it? Do I renew it? Did I reject it entirely? And I think we're at a point where that that's not possible for a lot of people, certainly for people in, especially in my class or our class, the kind of uh, career mobile laptop class, it's less and less possible for us because our lives are so in constant dislocation and so forth that you can't easily assume a tradition. You have to adopt one. You have to cultivate it consciously. And I don't have any point to make about that. I just think it's just the reality. But that doesn't mean that I'm going to stop that search for traditional wisdom and to try to make it new for a new age. I mean, it just, it seems because the alternative is is just utter deracination and tragedy, frankly. And I, I would also think, I think fear, fear, I would say, fear and indecision. One of the things that I observe about a lot of my peers, kind of upper middle-class educated professionals in, in the city is that they're bereft of tradition and it's been sold to them as liberation. And so now you can do whatever you want. You should keep your options open though. And that's the kind of phrase. And keeping your options open means they don't actually commit to anything, nothing irrevocable, right? Marriage, they'll date for like 10 years and then kind of just hug. And ultimately, those are the firmest, strongest shackles you could possibly put on yourself. So your freedom exists at a level of potency. You don't actually do anything. And, and, and this is why tradition for me is an imperative, is that to know where you've come from, to have a sense of ordered continuity, there are these steps stretching behind you and steps possibly moving forward, and there's guardrails along the way, you then leap forward and, you, and then you can you know, live courageously, I think. This has been tradition's effect in my own life. Right? I mean, I was career-wise, I was successful in my 20s, just like living in London, New York, blah, blah, blah. Um, but it was much more relaxing in a way to A, get married, become a father, you know, adopt a faith that has kind of this rich moral framework. And I don't have to solipsistically look into myself every day and be like, hmm, what do I really believe? Like, who am I? As a, That's kind of been answered. You know, I'm a father, I'm a husband, I'm a believer. And then I can actually act in the world with this. I don't know, but I think this, you take this for granted. Right. It's so freeing. It's so freeing. <laughs> it's like, I don't need to like, that doesn't, by the way, that makes it sound like I'm, it's, it's facile or that there's no challenge in faith. Of course there's challenge in faith. Of course there's like an abyss lurking where you think, is this all nonsense? Am I just believing? There are moments like that. And you constantly think, am I fooling myself? Am I a hypocrite? That's the challenge of faith, but that challenge is in weirdly enjoyable too. So I don't want to make it sound like everything's been answered for me. I just won't move forward. No, in a way, it's more challenging than to not have faith and tradition. Ultimately, just, there's this kind of direction and you're not just sort of, I hate this sense of floating in life that so many of my peers just, just floating through, you know, it seems inhuman. That was amazing. And hold on just one sec. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back. And we're back. So one really fascinating thing that I encountered in your book that just piqued my interest because it's kind of speaks to my background is you actually have a section, one of the earlier chapters on the importance of Jesus's mm -hmm. Jewishness. The first time I ever published a piece in the, in the Wall Street mm -hmm. Journal was actually about this. Um, there is a long history 
of anti-Semites seeking to strip Jesus of his Jewishness. This was famously a, a project of the Nazis mm -hmm. and some of the, you know, notorious Aryan thinkers. And it's been sort of like a repeated theme throughout history. I think what people know less about is the long and deep tradition of some of the greatest Jewish thinkers in history engaging with this question as well and insisting on Jesus's Jewishness, not because they have any wish to claim Jesus the Christian, uh, you know, we we don't for, for obvious reasons, uh, but Jesus as a Jew is actually something very important to the medieval, the medieval sage, the Tash Bates, to the early modern sage, Rabbi Jacob Emden, one of the greatest Jewish authors in history. Can you speak a little bit about this? Why is it important that Jesus was Jewish? Well, I should say that that chapter is in the context of an attempt at, at drawing out what Christian political theology means for the individual. Why does God care about politics? Why does God care about you as an individual? And um, the subject right. of the chapter is actually a Protestant thinker, uh, Howard Thurman, who is a kind of a spiritual guru of the civil rights movement. He was a generation before Martin Luther King. And he wrote a book called Jesus and the, and the Disinherited, which Martin Luther King carried with him when he went you know, traveling up and down the country uh, campaigning for civil rights. His argument is not that complicated, but he basically says that if Christianity is to mean anything in our collective lives, besides issues of salvation, it has to be a religion of the poor and, and has to speak to people in any given age who are the masses. The poor, not just in the sense of the abject poor of the beggar, although Christianity speaks profoundly to that. I think right now of, there's a church in New York by Penn Station called Church of St. Francis of Assisi, and there's a statue of a beggar kind of with his hand outstretched asking for money, but there's a stigmata, there's a there's a holes there, right? So it's, it reminds you that, at least in the Christian telling, that, that God himself was marginalized and poor at one point. I mean, again, it's a very Christian paradox that I think... Even if you theologically don't buy it, there's aesthetically it's drawn lots of people who aren't Christians that there's something about that. But anyway, but why does his Jewishness matter um, for Howard Thurman? And I think for, for me and the argument I put forward is that that you cannot isolate Jesus of Nazareth. You cannot abstract the fact that he's a member of a community that was politically besieged, a community that had been ever since the Hellenistic conquest, and then almost immediately after <laughs> the Romans take over, in one way or another, it finds itself assailed by this more powerful pagan civilization. Now, we just spoke about how there's a great value, to my mind, in the intellectual encounter between the two, between Jewish revelation and Greco-Roman reason. But Howard Thurman makes the point, again, I think correctly, that what that meant on a given day for the average Jew circa 2000 years ago was humiliation. It was political disempowerment. It was the sense that like a Roman centurion could like insult your wife on the street. Uh, would that, what would that, you know, it's a sense of a- Or put an idol in your temple. Or put an idol in your temple or what have like you. Like even at the national level. So that has political consequences for the religion of Christianity. If it's founder, you have to think about it as a Jew in late antique Middle East, He's a member of a besieged community. He's a member of, a, of an oppressed community. In everything in Christianity, it has a kind of passage down the ages, right? So for example, in Catholic Christianity, that is. So Jesus gives St. Peter the keys and says, I'm finding my church upon the rock of you, Petrus Peter. That has carried on. The kind of incarnational element has carried on through the ages in Petrine authority and the authority of the popes. 
Well, the idea of, of Jesus as a Jew who is part of a besieged community also has relevance beyond its own immediate geopolitical context, which is obviously over, that we have to pay attention to him as a member of a community and not just as an individual. I think it's a very obvious point and maybe a simple one, but strikingly put by Thurman, nevertheless. I think that's like a really good opportunity just in terms of story, in terms of a sensitivity to the political to just shift gears before we close. And that is we find ourselves now at a moment where that kind of searching, that kind of thirst for something more has made its way into our politics one way or another. So like some of, you know, contemporary American politics is like deeply silly and unserious and we should like reject that and rail against it and replace it. But there is kind of one phenomenon of contemporary American politics that I find myself just more ambivalent about than I would have thought. And that's kind of like the woke liberal divide, which, you know, I'm sure there are more accurate ways to describe it. But that's pretty good, though. Yeah, right. I'm saying like to caricature it, I think it's sort of like on the one hand, you know, you have a group of people who see injustice, you know, in every single crevice, nook and cranny in, in American society and are looking for a way to undo it and to create alliances and communities that will be able to come together and and do something different. And on the other side, you have people who who sort of tend to be more elite or or more or kind of, you know, more associated with like the old school of American political power who sort of say, well, no, there's a good and right way of doing things in American life that we more or less perfected in the last couple of decades. And why are you messing with success? It's kind of like how the other Beach Boys react to Brian Wilson trying to make pet sounds. Is don't F with the formula. And, you know, to be more generous, I don't want to be caricature it too much, but, you know, it's sort of the idea that there actually is is great goodness in American life, you know, and there's great virtue in sort of the liberal procedures that we've set up They that encourage and, and require, in fact, epistemological humility. But I think I'm the kind of person who, like, temperamentally and politically, my instinct would be to kind of be on the side of the liberals. And I suppose if I had to pick a side, that's probably where I'd end up. But I have found myself with more same, more sympathy for the woke side of things than I thought I would have going into it. And I wanted to just, like, unpack it a little bit and get your sense of it, because I feel like we might be kindred spirits on this, although it could be just be putting myself out there. Like the woke kids kind of remind me a lot of like the student activists from the 60s, right, who are, or rather, let me let me rephrase it. The liberal reactors to wokeness kind of remind me of like the establishment parents of the 60s, right? So like the types who were like horrified by the excesses of the hippies and the campus agitators, and they weren't wrong per se, right? Like the student radicals were bad and sometimes evil and sometimes in quite like ridiculous ways. And some of them were Stalinists and obviously completely inexcusable and horrible and wrong, like asymmetrically wrong. But fundamentally, they believed in something and they were like desperately searching for meaning and they saw their parents like the post-war generation proclaim, you know, like a color TV, a foreign car and a country club membership to be like the pinnacle of human achievement. And they rightly perceived them as like the latter day descendants of Nineveh. And I remember actually my grandfather, who was had very harsh words for the students, activists and for the new Black Panthers. He thought they were anti-Semites and he thought they were they were quite evil in some serious ways. But he actually said about them in a sermon you know, they're far superior to and more promising than the previous generation, the one that matured after World War II and whose only real interests were job security, good pay and a house in the suburbs. So when I look at the young radicals today, I think like in spite of themselves, they're sort of like students of George Washington who 
you know, well understood that free speech and free enterprise are like negative liberties that are going to collapse without the indispensable supports of religion and morality. And fundamentally, they wanted something to believe in. And they, you know, the young radicals back then and now, I think they want moral vision. They want eschatology. They want priests and prophets. They want a calling to a higher purpose. And they knew and they know today that their parents don't believe in any of that. So they rejected them. And of course, like they threw the baby and maybe like the whole damn family out with the bathwater, you know, which meant chucking biblical tradition and wisdom out the window as well, which was terrible. And, you know, all that was left for them was liberation and self-creation. But fundamentally, I think what they want You know, they see their parents lionizing Martin Luther King Jr. as if Dr. King was some sort of like political science professor who wanted to create an American society where anybody, whatever their race or or creed, could be hired by a hedge fund. But actually, he was a preacher who was preaching the book of Deuteronomy's vision of the mountaintop Mm -hmm. and gazing (laughs) upon the biblical promised land and Everything he was preaching was incomprehensible without a sense of biblical faith and and that old time religion and tradition. I don't want any other way to say it. So, like, I find myself oftentimes like in sympathy with the woke revolt against liberalism, even if ultimately, as I said, I have to choose a side. I'll choose the liberal side. But as someone who's coming from a perspective, first and foremost, I don't mean to overspeak, but I'm I think I'm right here. You know, first and foremost, your allegiance is to God and to the church. At the end of the day. Do you feel that kind of sympathy for the woke side of things? And how do we suss that out if we're to move forward from this divide? You and I are are so close on this because I had a feeling. <laughs> as between as between like my friend Barry Weiss and Thomas Chatterton Williams. Right, who I love. Yeah, but and on the other side, the minions of Ibrahim Kindi, I'll choose Chatterton, you know. <laughs> like right, Tom, Tom exactly. No question. Um as, as, as just a matter of kind of choice between two warring sides, because I know like the other side will, you know, uh, some of them would send me to the gulag if they could. Right. Uh, <laughs> oh my God, you're like on the first train out, man. <laughs> yeah, and, 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 and whereas, whereas, yeah, I don't know, Chatterton would make good company in, in the gulag. Right. That said, I'm very much with you because I think that first of all, from the point of view of what the liberals are attempting to do, it's just like, well, everything is fine. We have procedures, free speech. It's not enough. Those procedures are fine, and we should, you know, protect them. Especially religious people, you know, being a minority, increasingly in secular, progressive America, sure. But it's not a sufficient account of why we have societies, what we aim to do with societies. The aim of societies ultimately is is common good. It's peace. And, and that, to use the cliche, but that does require justice, right? And so the liberal just saying, banging his drums about just procedure is leaving all sorts of appetites, political appetites that come with being a political animal as human beings are, he's leaving those dissatisfied. And so then you get a kind of genuinely creedal politics that's using the language of justice and rectifying historical sins and so forth. And it's a lot more powerful. And so the liberal becomes... You know, you can take pot shots from your substack, but uh, these people will conquer the institutions. Like for that reason, I think like wokeness to me is like a religion in desperate search of a God. Yes. But here's what I would say, though, is I also feel that same sympathy for the wokes, right? Not sympathy, but appreciation for the fact that they feel that their parents' generation has left them something, you know, impoverished. This is a narrow view of life. The problem, and here I'll go back to your 60s analogy. The problem is that they're rejecting the very thing that could... That could save um, them. <laughs> that could save them. Yes. Right? Because the problem with the 60s was 
that they were right. The kids of the 60s were right that their parents had given them a conformist, in a bad way, soulless world. And their parents had turned education from the quest to know what's true, what's good, what's beautiful, to this kind of disparate, disorganized, just stuffing your mind with various facts and kind of technical knowledge that didn't feed the hunger of the soul. They were right. The problem was that they set their sights on tradition as the enemy. They misdiagnosed the enemy. And the forces that they decried, you know, large capital, consumer capitalism, loves its subjects to not have tradition. They want you to be kind of deracinated and willing to just go with whatever wins and not have any kind of solid grounding, whether in God, faith, family, political community, anything like that. And so then you get, why did the generation of 60s, why are all its radicals now basically like EU bureaucrats? Exactly. Right. Right. (laughs) (laughs) None of them became that. At the end of the day, their own personal lives, you know, Danielle Combendi, Joschka Fischer in Europe, all these kind of 60s radicals are now, they're foreign ministers, they're members of the European Parliament in the United States. You know, it's Bill Clinton, it's... Obama. It's the guy in the C-suite at Goldman Sachs. And like even in culture, right? It's like Dylan's getting Nobel prizes and Bruce Springsteen's doing like jillion dollar podcasts on Spotify with the president. Right. It wasn't wasn't all that rebellious because the rebellion by turning against tradition just accelerated the processes that the 60s radicals decried. And similarly, I would say about the wokes that by attacking the church, they're burning churches by chopping at American identity and so taking acts to American identity, why is it that every major corporation has embraced the wokes? It doesn't see them as... If, if wokeness was a, was a material threat to the interests of the trustees of, of Ivy League universities and Amazon and Apple and the Walton family and Walmart Corporation and any of the others, they would shut down the wokes like that. They aren't. They're happy to have you, you know, create people who have no identity, no past, who hate their own past, who hate their religion. So it's the least subversive kind of thing. I think that process is repeating itself. The tragedy of the 60s was that it wasn't really radical. It reminds me like a fight club, right? So like, meaning the only person Ed Norton is destroying is himself, right? Like Nike doesn't care at all what happens to Ed Norton. In fact, Ed Norton's fight club is fine and dandy because it's like something that kind of distracts Ed Norton while he keeps buying more stuff. Yes, yes, exactly. So... You know, just to to close it up, the book is just so extraordinary. I really encourage everybody to read it. If there is one chapter that, you know, you feel like this is the chapter, like I really want people to to really focus on the whole. Obviously, you have to read the whole thing. There's one chapter I want to highlight. Like, what's your go to chapter? Like either it's the favorite one you wrote or your favorite one to read or reread or your favorite one to recommend. What's the one chapter? I guess it would be the the chapter about um the centrality of ritual and why you can't be spiritual without being religious. And it's told through the lives of a pair of British anthropologists who studied African religion and they were card carrying Marxists, you know, and And they go on quite a journey. And when they return from Africa, having studied African ritual, they actually become believers and they are received into the Catholic church. Um, So that's the personal drama, but, but also because I think it just speaks to a lot of um, other kinds of, Spirituality, I imagine you also encounter in the Jewish community, right? Like the sense that organized ritual is a betrayal of true spirituality. So I don't need that stuff. I'm just going to take Dead Sea salt bath and uh, do yoga or whatever. That's enough for me to access the 
And the central insight of this couple, Victor and Edith Turner, was that actually a lot gets done in communities through religious ritual, that nowhere else can you access those solutions. The way that it equalizes the powerful and powerless, the way it um, lets you access this otherwise forbidden zone, the way it conditions you to imagine what society could be like because you have this liturgical vision, this prefigurement of what society might be like in an ideal sense that then can become a blueprint for judging your existing society. All of this happens in religious ritual and, and nowhere else. So to be fully human means to submit to ritual. And, and obviously, I mean, I have to think about the Jewish community, to make that said very concrete, that bar mitzvah and the bat mitzvah as markers of adulthood, right? Why is it that traditional societies all have some version of that confirmation for Catholics? There's something that happens in that process where you say, I am now an adult. I am a member of this community and that means something. Compare that to the secular transition from teenagehood to adulthood. What do we mark that with? Nothing. And so then you wonder why people don't ever become adults, right? They just play video games into their 30s and 40s. So there might be something to the idea of marking adulthood, this transition from puberty to adulthood, that nowhere else can you do it without ritual. And to your point about ritual and tradition as freeing, that actually empowers young people in most cases who are not yet ready for adulthood in like the traditional sense. Like, you know, these rituals are, you know, a 13 year old becoming an adult in the Jewish tradition or a 12 year old becoming an adult in the Jewish tradition we wouldn't think of adulthood in that sort of conventional way in a contemporary perspective. But what it does is it empowers a child to actually choose to become an adult. It gives you that moment of actually saying, yes, this is what I want. This is the world I want to join. This is the community I want to be in, as opposed to just kind of like floating into it and being drawn into it either against your will or unconsciously. Like there's something so freeing and, and liberating about tradition and religion in that respect. Absolutely. This is amazing. Saurabh, thank you so much for coming on. This was awesome. Thank you for having me. America is deeply in need of a moral, cultural, spiritual revival. We all know this. And any successful version of that is going to need to be both revolutionary enough to capture the imagination and ignite that fire in our souls, and it's going to need to be true to the stories and values of our past, to the liberty and the freedom embedded in the promise of America. And I think on both those counts, the answer is tradition. The kind of tradition that Sorab's talking about. We find in our past some of the most groundbreaking things that have ever been thought and accomplished, revolutionary ways of thinking and being. And, as Sorab said, we find the kind of framework for human affairs that, far from being constraining and limiting, actually frees us to pursue kindness, justice, and virtue to the fullest extent, to build the kind of world we know we're capable of building before God. So with that, all I have for you are four words. Let's get to it. All right, that's it for now. This is Ari Lam making a good faith effort. I'll see you next time. Faith Effort was created and written by Ari Lam. If you enjoyed the show, please rate and review us on Apple Podcasts or your podcast app of choice, because it really helps others find the show. Our executive producer is Josh Cross. The show is produced and edited by Paul Ruest. This is a Joshua Network podcast presented by B'nai Zion. Follow us on Twitter at GFaithEffort. 
follow Ari at Ari Lamb, and sign up for our email list at thejoshuanetwork.com. The Joshua Network is now Soul Shop.